Good morning again. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I'll be reading Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. And they remembered His words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Father, let this historical record that Luke pens of those who testify, who lived then, felt and heard and saw The Lord Jesus, after He was dead, raised to glorious human resurrection, eternal and immortal life. Give every one of us eyes to see the truth, the center of all reality in this text this morning. To the glory of his holy name. Amen. History, in other words, happenings in the past are passed down through eyewitnesses, writings. Historians take those things and they judge the reliability of such and construct what happened in the past. That's why we, in our culture, can talk about our roots in Western civilization. We'll go back and talk about Mesopotamia. Why? Because there's some witnesses. There's writings. There's pottery. We know some things. Or Egypt. Or, or the Greeks. You know, a guy named Socrates even lived, but it's about all we know. We don't know much about him. It's very, very little. He was executed by the Athens city-state. And we go on and on and on and on. We can talk about the Crusades 
almost a thousand years ago, we have records of what happened. We talk about the American Revolution. We teach our kids. We went there. How do we know? Records. Those who lived. And we judge the reliability. A hundred years ago, what is it that started that catastrophe called World War One? It had such ramifications for the last hundred years. There's lots of books on it. Because we can know a lot. Because of records. All of these happenings in history, as significant as they are, the importance of any of them does not compare to the importance of the historical record that Jesus, the preacher from Nazareth up and down Palestine, was bodily raised from the dead. Now, think about it. Right now, at this moment, on the earth, there are billions of things that are true, but not significant. I mean, if you tell me, right now it's true, three blocks over there in Lawndale, there's a man sitting at his table eating breakfast named Bill. I don't care. I'm not going to go and spend time trying to find out if what you said is true because the significance is not very great to me. But there are some things that are proclaimed that are so great if they're true or have a large significance if they're true, but they're not true. So why waste your time on such things. You've got an internet filled with websites of that where people waste their lives on untruths, believing that they're true. I have on the wall of my study a little piece of paper with three questions. I try to live by these questions in studying the Bible or reading a newspaper article or having a conversation with my wife or someone else or reading a philosophical argument or anything. And the three questions go like this. First, what is someone saying? A lot of times we jump to conclusions. I know what you mean and we argue. And you find out you don't have a clue what they're saying. You misinterpret it. What is someone saying? Okay, now I got it. Second question. Is it true? Third question. What of it? What about it? Or what significance? Does it have? Is it important? Is it not important? Those three questions apply to our text this morning. They apply to the whole message of Christianity. Because when it comes to that first question, what are they saying? It's pretty clear. They're saying that this man named Jesus in the town of Nazareth, was the ones that the Hebrew prophets foretold. The Messiah, the Son of David. They're proclaiming that He was the Creator God who became a human being in order to die for the sins of many. And that they actually were encountered by Him for weeks 
after his bodily resurrection from the dead. Okay, that's the first question. What are they saying? That's it. Okay, but now the question is, is it true? And what of it? A lot of times you should jump to the what of it before you go to the to true so you don't waste your time. A lot of people think a lot of stuff and conspiracy theories. I just look at them. I'm not going to waste my time. I don't care. But the what of it of what they're saying is huge. Because if it's true, there is no greater possible news ever. And therefore, question number two, is it true, is really important. Because if it's not true, then it really doesn't matter. (laughs) Then the message therefore really isn't great, because it's just a fairy tale. I mean, for instance, as a pastor, I get, I get emails periodically from a so-called Christian African woman who was married to a millionaire and he suddenly died and she's looking for churches to invest in. And so, your church, we would love to give $100,000 to. Great news! Just click the buttons, write in the information. Can't get better than that. But what do I do? I delete it. I waste my time. Because I'm a fairly rational human being. I know very confidently it's not true. So go on and watch the ball game or something. Do something else. So the question though about what we're reading in our text this morning The ramifications of it are huge, and so the question of is it true is big. And so now we turn to the credibility of the eyewitnesses of the historical account. Now, remember, I know it's a long time ago, but the way that Dr. Luke began his narrative of the life of Jesus, this is how he began it, quote, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and the ministers or servants of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, He's been compiling as a historian for a long time to do this, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so, this issue of the truthfulness or reliability of the eyewitnesses is crucial. I mean, for for one reason, it is Christianity is unique among the world's religions. Christianity is not a philosophy of life, how to live and enjoy the next 60 years better. Christianity is not mainly about doctrine. Nor is it 
mainly about moral codes. It, it, is, it has all that. But at its core, Christianity is founded upon the seemingly ludicrous, impossible proposition that Jesus, who was dead, and we saw last week in the burial, for a long time, for at least 40 hours, this proposition that He was transformed physically into the resurrection of Christ. And if that is not literally and historically true, Jesus from Nazareth, that preacher, we have, you know, the world's been really affected by 2,000 years by him. He was a liar. Or, at best, he was a self deceived lunatic. And so this morning, we come, or begin to come now, to the historical record of the resurrection that Luke composes for us. So if you're there in Luke, Actually, I'm going to start a couple of verses before, or the verse before chapter 24. Remember now, Jesus has been wrapped with the spices and taken to the cave or the tomb and put there. And then Luke picks up in verse 56 of chapter 23. Then they, these women, returned back into the city and prepared spices and ointments. It's Friday evening. On the Sabbath, they rested. In other words, from sundown Friday all the way through the night and then all day Saturday till sundown and then rested all that night until Sunday morning. They rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. So these women, got to remember, they're distressed. They're depressed. They're grieving with no hope. And according to Mark's account, on the way to the tomb, they're having a discussion. Who are we going to get to roll that big, heavy, round stone away from the opening of the tomb? So as they're walking that early morning, still in the dark through the streets of Jerusalem and out the gate, they are expecting nothing except more sorrow. As they again anoint with heavy spices to kill the stench of a decaying body of their Master, Jesus. See, if you take flowers or the spices to, to a funeral home and you get to there, you're not expecting the coffin to be empty. And if you do find it empty, you don't jump to the conclusion, oh, my loved one's been raised from the dead. You're wondering, what's going on? Who took the body? What's happening here? And that's exactly what the women were thinking. It's exactly what Mary Magdalene was thinking according to John. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body 
of the Lord Jesus. That's a big stone. It takes a few strong men to roll it away to the side. And Matthew, in his account, lets us know what happened on the Sabbath on Saturday. Caiaphas and many of Jesus' enemies went to Pilate and said, we have to get Roman soldiers to guard the tomb because this guy talked about rising from the dead. And so Roman guards were stationed there. And yet they show up and the stone is rolled away. Matthew says an angel of the Lord rolled it away. So here are these women now in our text and they're really confused. And the only thing they can conclude is someone stole the body. That's where they're at at this moment. Here's a fact. The tomb was empty. The body of Jesus, it was gone. See, if the tomb had not been empty, then 50 days later, when His gang starts preaching about the resurrection, all that the Jewish Sanhedrin had to do was produce the body. They couldn't. But if they did, the eleven would have been run out of town in laughter. And all the different scenarios that critics have brought up over the last, particularly last couple hundred years, about how the tomb got empty. Maybe the Roman, the Roman soldiers took a bribe and they took the body and hid it out. Well, they had no real motive. And if it was a bribe, it's really doubtful they would have risked their lives as Roman guards in charge of not letting the body get lost. I don't, it didn't work. Or his disciples stole the body. Now, according to Matthew, that is exactly what the Jewish Sanhedrin, once they found out the body is gone, uh-oh, they conspired with the Roman soldiers who were in charge of that, who were also going to get in trouble, and paid them off to try to mouth that kind of language. Well, the disciples came and stole it. But these disciples were downcast. They were confused. And the idea that they would have been brave enough to have a grave robbery with Roman plural soldiers guarding the tomb didn't work. But, but if you just assume for a moment they did steal the body. It's inconceivable that they would have gone on preaching that lie. Week after week, month after month, year after year, particularly in the face of what it cost them when it came to persecution and physical beatings and imprisonment and some death. And in the end, most of the apostles' death for their testimony of eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Here are these women. They're distressed. Body's not there. And they're thinking, what in the heck has happened? And you pick up with verse 4. 
while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, we'll get there in a minute, These are clearly angels. Luke confirms it later. The other writers confirm these are angelic beings. The women are overcome with fear because they know at this point this. This is some kind of a supernatural something that scared the living dickens out of them and they go to the ground. But they don't know what it's about at that moment yet until one of the angels rebukes them. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. They're accused of coming to anoint a lifeless body. Evidently, when they should have known He would rise from the dead. Listen to how the angel says it. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. And they remembered His words. That's right. What are they talking about? Well, you just get a, get a taste. Especially this last nine month journey to Jerusalem. These women were in His traveling party. Numbers of them were very wealthy and were supporting the ministry, Luke lets us know, earlier. So, For instance, right after Peter's insight by the Holy Spirit, you're the Christ, Jesus then says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. After that, Jesus This is what Matthew tells us. From that time, this is about nine months earlier now, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then later, after His transfiguration, the mountain, He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But Luke tells us, but they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about 
this saying. When they got closer to Jerusalem, Luke 17 we read, Jesus says to them, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And then later He says, Luke tells us, and taking the twelve, He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, Romans, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise. And then Luke says again, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So with his apostles and with the women who were clearly had heard these things, it never registered is the point. They didn't get it. Remember, Jesus often spoke in parables and in metaphors. Lies, okay, whatever that means. Not thinking it's going to mean physical, real resurrection of the dead. In other words, through His ministry, before it all happened, as they're on the journey, as apostles, or these women aren't saying, oh, I heard you just say, oh, you're going to rise and be killed. Great! Let's get going to Jerusalem so we can get you all killed off, Jesus. And we'll hang around for a few days and then you'll rise from the dead. That's a great plan. They're not thinking that. When Jesus clearly told them. I mean, no one would. I mean, we might as well just walk outside and start flapping our arms and fly to the beach. You think I'm nuts. I can't mean it, literally. They had no category for this. Resurrection of the dead. Dead human beings who are dead, 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 dead. I don't mean resuscitated within an hour. Don't come to new immortal life. Oh, they do, but it's in fairy tales and fantasy and movies. That's it. But here they are now. Now things have transpired. These women have watched... Jesus, their rabbi, their master, whom they loved, clung to His words. They watched Him slowly tortured to death. Killed. Taken down. The next hour to two hours dealt with with spices and wrappings and carried over to the garden tomb. Put in there. They watched it all. And now... Sunday morning, in grief, they bring the spices and the body is gone. Then they have the bejeebies scared out of them by these two angels who are saying the body is gone because your Lord, as if you remember, kept telling you He would rise. Now their eyes 
are opened to the previous words of the Lord Jesus as there's no body and frightening angelic beings tell them what happened. Now, when it comes to historical events, lots of stuff happened. Now, if I said to you, and we see, a week ago my wife and I, we went out to dinner, then we came home, and we watched a show with the children, and we went to bed. Absolutely true. And then she can tell you the same thing, except she'll make 30 pages of it, and she'll tell you about our entire conversation. It's absolutely true. I didn't, I didn't lie. Okay, so when it comes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the they're, they're ultimately like all historians. We're editors. They're editors. What do we put in? What do we leave out? How am I going to get the flow? What's the truth? It's not just writing everything. You would never end, as John said in his Gospel. There's so many things that the, the world couldn't contain the books. And so, the question is, what are they putting in? What are they not? Okay, so let's wait. Let's go to verses 8 and 9 of our text first. And then you'll see why I'm saying that. Verse 8, And the women... They remembered Jesus' words. And then he just goes, kaboom! Like I would do on a date with my wife. We went home and to bed. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, to all the rest. Okay. But before they actually got back to the eleven and to the rest of the disciples, something else happened. Matthew lets us know it, saying this, and we'll see, well, maybe we'll see, but John lets us know the same thing too. Matthew says it this way in Matthew 28. And so, after the encounter with the angels, they, the women, departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Okay, then they go report these things to disciples. All four gospel accounts agree that the women were the first to see the resurrected Lord Jesus. And this in itself is strong evidence for their testimony and the testimony of the early church, of those who would be careful to say, this is what happened. Because women in first century Jewish culture, they were not allowed to testify in court for anything. They couldn't do it. Their word meant nothing. So if this was a made-up fabrication about the resurrection of Jesus. There's no way they're going to write it this way. Women testify to His resurrection. 
And you add to that that those who make up stories to try to fool people don't usually write those stories in such a way that they themselves look like idiots or look bad. Actually, this is one of the strong evidences for the Hebrew Scriptures being what it claims to be. God's Word to Moses the psalmist and the prophets. Because when you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, from beginning to end, it is the vast majority of it is making the Jews, God's people, look really bad. Who does that? If they were making it up. Unless it really is divinely inspired. And so here... When it comes to Jesus' chosen apostles, they look bad. Because when the women came and said, this is what's happened, Jesus had been saying all this, they thought the women were nuts. Verses 10-11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Now, let me start. You know how, why they always do Mary, the mother of James, or Mary, the mother of Joseph? Because there's a lot of Marys for one. And then they have last names, and that's how you connect them either to a husband or to. Okay, that's why they're being really careful which Marys we're talking about here, okay? And Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tell, and they did not believe them. These are devastated men who are not impressed with what these women are telling them on this Sunday morning. It's called really silly talk, babbling. We all would have reacted the same way. But these men who reacted that way and didn't believe, for the most part, we'll see, they were apostles. These were the men over whom Jesus prayed all night long, if you remember back then, and then in the morning chose out of hundreds these apostles. These are the men upon whom Jesus, who is the foundation of the church, upon them, these men, that foundation then will be erected. These are the ones that He told on numerous occasions, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed and I will rise. It's these men. And so what do they do when the women come and bear witness He has risen? They dismissed them as fools. That's a historical. But Peter, who's there, I don't know how many are in the room, 100, 50, 20, we don't know. There's more than 11. Peter's there, and he's had a pretty bad last few days. Since Thursday late night when he ran away from Caiaphas' courtyard in tears and in shame. He hears these words. He's probably thinking, 
Jesus has really said some bizarre things lately that actually came true. I mean, Peter was so darn sure. Jesus, I will die with you. Go to prison. And Jesus looked at him on Thursday evening and said, before the sun rises, essentially, before the rooster crows, you will have denied ever knowing me, Peter. Away, Jesus! And it came true. Peter remembers when Jesus told him, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed. And Peter says, no way, I'm never going to let that happen. And he was rebuked by Jesus as if he was mouthing Satan's words. And Peter knows he did get killed. He did say stuff about rising. Maybe that wasn't just metaphorical. And so you read in verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. Got to do that. The opening's probably only about three to three and a half feet. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling and what had happened. Now, I want you to turn, or click, to the Gospel of John, chapter 24, a moment. Now, Peter did get up, ran through the streets of Jerusalem, went out the gate, went to the tomb. Absolutely, just as Luke said. But it doesn't mean he was the only one. John, the son of Zebedee, one of the apostles wants to tell his story and from his perspective, and he writes it this way. The women came back, they told them, and you pick up in verse 3, and so, John writes, and so Peter went out with the other disciple He's referring to himself. That's how he talks about himself in the Gospel. With the other disciple. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other, or let's just say it clearly. Then John says, Then I, who reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. Peter and John 
saw the linen wrappings that were around Jesus' body lying there, but Jesus' body was not inside of them. If someone had stolen the body, they would not have first taken the time to unwrap Jesus from the linen cloths and then take the naked dead body out. Jesus passed through the grave clothes. He left them there, wrapped around nothing. And then the face cloth folded up, put over here. Now, as far as we go in our text this morning and up to this point in our text Luke does not yet mention in his account what he will be mentioning in the rest of the chapter and in his second book called the Acts of the Apostles and that is the numerous resurrection appearances of Jesus to His apostles that dramatically changed their lives. We'll get there. But with the grave wrappings lying intact, it shows that Jesus in the resurrection didn't just wake up and slowly unwrap Himself. It shows that He was resurrected from the dead. That His real, mortal, human, dead body was transformed into an eternal, immortal, human body that could pass through cloth. Or is in John's Gospel, what we'll later say, could have a, be in a room with the doors closed and they never open and then Jesus is there and speaks. Sound waves happen. And He's done and then He's gone. And yet He could sit and eat fish with them. The Apostle Paul describes the resurrection body, and it's no less true of Jesus. When he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay. He's the first human being ever resurrected. He won't be the last. When He comes again, all who are His will be just like He is in His resurrection. Paul teaches, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. You sow an acorn? Guess what? It's, that acorn is very, very directly connected to that oak tree. 
Look! And they are very different in one sense, but very much the same in another. And that's what Paul goes on arguing. Then he picks up and he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, even of Jesus' mortal body, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Death, physical, human death, is an aberration. It is a result of sin. Jesus died for our sin. It is unwelcomed. It is dishonorable. It is sown in dishonor. And it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. That's what happened to the Lord Jesus in His physical body that we have seen for months now. Trials, torture, crucifixion. And there's no way to explain, I don't think, if you just look at it historically, there's no way to explain how these timid, fearful, hiding out, depressed, confused men who were so changed into bold witnesses who were ready to die for what they were testifying about. Except for this fact that it's true that they actually sat with, ate with, conversed with the resurrected Lord Jesus. Peter and John and the others and the women. We're going to see more resurrection appearances in the week or two weeks to come. But know this, Peter and John, as that day they saw that they haven't met Jesus in His resurrection yet, but John says, I already believed. And they will proclaim, for example, as Peter does in Acts chapter 2. About five weeks later, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of sinful men. But God raised Him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. That's what they'll preach. The church will be founded. Peter will die for it. James, the son of Zebedee, will die for it. A disciple, not apostle Stephen, will die for it. Paul will later die for it. So what we have here then 
in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John is an historical record. It is an account of eyewitnesses, or like Luke or Mark, those who are historians, getting first-hand information from eyewitnesses, checking things out, and recording it for us. The record is clear of what was happening in the 30s of the first century, that these men and these women, many others, were absolutely convinced of their testimony of seeing and walking with, talking with, and eating with that man who was brutally tortured to death after he was resurrected from the dead. And they believed it so much so that they spent the rest of their lives spreading that testimony. That good news. See, the resurrection, therefore, it proves that Jesus did come to give His life in death as a ransom for many. That He did die in order to save those who believe. As He said to Thomas, remember, have you believed because you have seen Me post-death in My resurrection, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so, Paul will write a couple decades later, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes, and they're justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So here we are, 2,000 years down the road from this historical account, and we know, realize that as this testimony that continues to go on, called the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ and His resurrection, we know what happens. Some hear it and believe. And their life is turned upside down. Not just in time with joy, but for eternity. And we know so many others hear it and don't believe. Why? Let me just, let me just tell you, you know, there are still people walking the earth. I mean, it's almost one out of every ten. Welcome to the human race here that don't believe that Elvis Presley is dead. I mean, I'm pretty sure of it since August 1977. But these people exist. Okay, okay we know human nature now. They're broken. Why don't people believe in this message? The answer is because it is ultimately a heart issue. In other words, 
the implications of Jesus' life, of His words, of His death, the implications that did He really come out of the grave in a new resurrection life, the implications of that are very personal and intrusive upon the way we live our lives. And because of that, the unchanged human heart, which is all of us born into sin as sinners, darkened with no taste buds to worship and delight and love the God who made us, that unchanged human sinful heart will ignore the evidence. Remember how Jesus summarized the story He told about Abraham, bosom and all that? The end? Surely, Jesus, if someone rises from the dead, they'll believe. Here's Jesus' response. If they are the person who is of the disposition, I added that part right here, okay? If they do not Listen to the Scriptures. To Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so they don't believe. But to those who are called, God shines the light in their heart through new birth to see the objective truth of Jesus' bodily resurrection. And therefore, all the claims of what His life and His death and His resurrection accomplishes for them. Now, I am not saying that Christianity is based on subjective experience. I believe you don't. No. Christianity is founded on the objective. Irrelevant of whether I think it's true or don't think it's true. Absolutely irrelevant. It's an historical testimony that's true or not about Him coming back to resurrection Life. It's based on that historical, objective, bodily resurrection that was recorded by eye, ear, and touch witnesses. Now, yes, the Christian life of any of us who are being saved is subjective. Of course, that just means we are experiencing something. Yes, we are subjects experiencing the the glory and the goodness and the joy of the life of Christ in us. Yes, it is true that Jesus lives in by the non-physical person of God, the Holy Spirit, who has caused them to come to spiritual eye-opening life, miraculously, called new birth. Absolutely that's true. But that's not the foundation of Christianity. 
That's not the truth claim of the Christian Gospel. Yes, faith is a miracle of God raising sinners from the dead in order to believe. But none of our subjective feelings and thoughts or beliefs about Jesus make the Gospel true. He either is God incarnate who became man, who was the substitutionary sacrifice to satisfy God's justice against sinners crucified, dead, buried, and on the third day was gloriously resurrected from the dead, or not. I can believe that the moon is made of cheese, but my belief doesn't make it so. Jesus is not alive because He's alive to me. Jesus doesn't live in my heart because, well, to me, He's the resurrected Lord. No. He either was historically against against everything we know scientifically about dead bodies, miraculously raised from the dead. We're not. So as we have been studying this last week of Jesus, so I hate to say it almost, but since the beginning of last September, and we enter Holy Week, oh, let us again use this week the contemplations of these stunning and glorious events. He was killed, suffering the wrath of God that we sinners deserved. And He was raised, confirming all the prophets. Every word of His mouth and confirming that His death was sufficient for us. And so, I'm going to close where we began this morning. What is someone saying? Is it true? And what of it? What is being said? Christ is risen really historically from the dead. And faith in Him is the only way to be saved from the judgment of God to come. That's what's being said. What of it? There is no more important message ever. And therefore, the most important question of all, is it true? Absolutely. The tomb was empty, and it remained empty. Mary and the others encountered the risen Lord Jesus. Peter and John looked into that tomb, 
and saw the grave clothes without the body. And two disciples walked and talked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus that we'll see next week. So I close with Paul's words. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Father, I pray that this week, as I know for many of us here in this church, going through Luke 22 and 23, now 24, that what is being said, on one way to look at it is, it is wild. Contemplation of Jesus' death, torture for us. As we slow down, we think about what actually happened. Contemplation. What we read this morning, that the women show up. Stone is rolled away. The body's gone. And that these women said, Jesus talked to us and we grabbed His feet. Father, I ask that by Your Holy Spirit that You would work in each and every one of us. You would cause us to come to repentance in our lives more readily. That by Your Spirit we will put down our idolatries. We will yearn to remember by reading your holy word. We will yearn to converse with you and to reveal openly our sin and prayer to you, standing upon the rock that Jesus is our justification and he is our sanctification. And he is risen gloriously, historically. And thus he is raised us second coming he will raise us physically thank you father for such a glorious salvation in your holy son